Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I remember being in the store and saying to a woman, why do you only wear black? And she says, I don't like colors. I say, but look at your nails, look at your lips. And she's, ah, but it's red, it's different. What's been the most challenging thing along the way as you've been building this business? To really keep the space that I really need, my freedom and the space for designing. Why is travel such a big part of your design language? I think that it's important to be really interested by other culture. Otherwise, it's my way or no way, and I think it's the worst way to be. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week on Inside Fashion, I sit down with Christian Louboutin, whose red-soled high heel shoes have made him a famous name all over the world. This week in Paris, Christian unveiled a very special retrospective of his entire career, set in a museum not far away from where he grew up in Paris's 12th arrondissement. I talked to him about where that red soul first came from, his design inspirations, and his views on the current conversations around cultural appropriation. Here's Christian Louboutin, Inside Fashion. Bonjour, Christian. Bonjour. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good. You've just walked me through an incredible exhibition of your work uh, here at the Palais de la Porte Dorée. Exactly. Which is a museum in the 12th arrondissement of Paris. And I want to spend some time talking about the exhibition. But before we do that, um, I'd like to go back to the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. And... I read somewhere that you dropped out of school at a very young age. Around 12, well, you still have to go to school till 16 when you, uh, when you live in, in France. But I was, yeah, I started to be expelled 
12 sort of out of three schools basically right but i and, stick and I, you were already obsessed with shoes right yeah yeah Why, where did that where did that come from this like shoe obsession it comes from different things but it, i would say sort of it comes from two things it comes from an obsession that i had as a kid for showgirls music hall and even even movies where I could see dancing. And uh, it comes from that, and it comes from actually from the place where we are now, which is this museum, mm -hmm. which used to be, um, which used to be a, a African and Oceanic art museum. But when you were entering, and it's a beautiful, magnificent building from 1931. So when you were entering, there was a signal, which was a drawing, and it was representing a shoe. So it was a silhouette of a shoe, a high heel from the 50s, but it, this was in the late 70s, so I sort of didn't know. But this drawing made me become sort of conscious that everything started by a drawing, because it was a drawing of a shoe, of a woman's shoe, but it was not existing, because I had never seen such shoe. It was a pointy last, a pointy stiletto. So I thought, I understand that it's a drawing representing a woman's shoe, but this shoe does not exist. So, and it was you showed me the sign, yeah, or a similar. And mm -hmm. It's a, a sign, sign saying, "Don't wear these shoes." Don't wear these shoes, exactly. But when you saw them as a young person, mm -hmm. you wanted to create shoes like that. Is that what happened? Exactly, exactly. So between my obsession for dancers on that drawing, that drawing made me understand that everything basically starts by a drawing. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do something which was not existing for music hall girls. Right. And I sort of, you know, for me, music hall girls were like, you know, they were further. And so they were like exotic birds. And I always loved birds. And so I didn't think they had costume because someone told me, but you could have designed costume for music hall girls. And I thought there was no costume, you know. Birds always had further. So it was natural to have further to those girls. But birds don't have shoes, so I wanted to create a human thing for these birds of paradise, in a way. What, what do you think shoes represent in our culture? You know, why is, you know, what, what is a shoe? Well, a shoe represents a lot of things. Uh, according to different cultures, it has different meanings, too. Mm -hmm. Such, same thing for colors. But the interesting thing is that, let's say, about my work, uh, when I first started to design shoes, for me, under my name, let's say, so early 90s, shoe was, people were always making reference to an accessory. And then from an accessory, it expanded into something by itself. You know, shoe has moved the limits of accessory, has left the domain of just being an accessory. It has become its own identity. And I think that it comes from different things, but definitely it comes from the fact that it's it's a very big symbol of liberation. It's a very a very big symbol of femininity, but it brings to uh, it brings to the person who wears the shoes, you know, a different posture, a different way of being, so a different way to show yourself, and um, and so it's a very different attitude. You know, it's a very small it's a very small element which gives we radiates into your entire body. It changes the body language. Mm -hmm. It changes the center of gravity. And the shoes wears a woman. You know, a woman wears her clothes, but the shoe carries the woman. Right. So you didn't formally study 
shoe design, but you worked no. with some very famous shoe designers, most yeah. importantly, Roger Vivier. Yes. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like? Because he's got obviously a, a, a you know, long and very historic, famous you know, history here in France as a mm -hmm. shoe designer. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like working with him? So what happened exactly with Roger Vivier is that when I worked with him, he had ended his career but he was a mentor to me. And uh, so I worked, I did a museologic type of work. So I was everything, his assistant, but I never designed for Roger. Never? So, no, no. I worked at the period of the retrospective. I had met him before, and then he asked me to be his assistant for everything, but not designing. And I didn't want to design for him. You know, I was so excited and happy uh, to look at the work of someone that I knew so well and to have it explained by, its master, by his master. And so what happened is that when I was 10, I started to do the sketch that I had seen in that museum, do and do and redo that sketch, and always the same profile. And so I started to put it on every table of my different schools where I got expelled because one of the reasons was because I was like trashing those tables with my designs. And, uh, and then one day, one person, and then I was, almost 16, gave me a book and said, for you and I who likes shoes, I'm, I found you this. And someone gave me the book of Roger Vivier. It was a gold matte cover and it just had his name. When I opened that book, I realized that my obsession with drawing shoes was also a beautiful work. But I had never thought of it as a work before I was You didn't think 16. there was a career in no. being a shoe designer? No, I didn't know any shoe designers. Really. Right. And so when I opened that book, I thought, this is it. That's the job that I'm supposedly doing. And from that moment, I started to change the angle. I started to draw. I was always only drawing profile. And when I des decided that I could be a designer, a shoe designer, I started to do three quarters, etc. when I saw the work of Roger. So Roger has been very, very important and influential because he sort of opened me completely to the idea that it was a beautiful, possible work. Mm. So then how did you actually learn how to design shoes so, if it wasn't through uh, Roger? So, no. So I started, so my first thing was to, to, draw, uh, to do shoes for showgirls. So I started an internship when I was 17 at the Folie Berger. Yeah. I stayed less than a year. And then after I realized that, you know, this is not broader, I was not going to do, I was not going to do shoes for showgirls. In Paris, it just doesn't happen. You know, I was there to glue, to help, to bring coffees, etc., which was very nice. And I learned a lot actually from dancers, but to really design shoes, I was not going to be there. So I ended up thinking fashion is probably the place to go. And I opened the yellow pages. I remember there was nobody. The first house was Balmain. There was nobody answering to the phone. Second house was Dior. When I asked to speak to the director, they said, director of what? I said, director of couture. And, and they passed me to this wonderful lady called Hélène de Mortemar, who was the director of couture. She gave me an appointment. She looked at my design. She said, it's very, very pretty. And do you want to do a stage? Dior is fabricated by Charles Jordan. I said yes. So I got sent to Charles Jordan in the south of France for one year. And this is where I learned to be my first job was as a modelist. So my formal education of a modelist comes from Charles Jordan. And then after, 
I was still very much like a night clubber. So one year at Charles Jordan in the in the south, in the middle of nowhere, was a bit <laughs> rough. A bit tough. <laughs> a bit but, rough. But at Charles Jordan, mm -hmm. um, the technical aspects of creating a shoe, mm -hmm. that's where you learned it. Because it's exactly. so important. You were just showing me that incredible installation to show how shoes are graded, mm -hmm. you know, and the sizing of it. Like, I think, in a way, shoe design is a bit like architecture and engineering. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's right? very engineering and architecture. That's why I, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to show. It's architectonic. Yeah. It's really precise, but it's all gradation, etc. It's very, very important, you know, when, uh, yeah, yeah, it is definitely. It's very technical. Mm. This is why actually it's also often expensive. And for instance, it's complicated for someone who would start to do a shoe, a proper shoe. So it's so much engineering, you know, so much metal inside formation in order to keep the, the balance, but also, also to keep the arch, etc. You know, you can sort of easily, I guess, do a dress with like a stitching thing and a needle. You can sort of manage to do something with fabric. But shoe is not fabric. It's leather, it's components which are complicated. It's a lot of engineering, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So finally, you have the kind of inspiration and you have the technical skills. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the decision to start your own business. That was in 1992? 1991, end of 1991. Yeah. What happened is that after, the, uh, after working with Roger Vivier, so the man, um, he no longer had his brand. So it was this big retrospective in Paris. So it was 87 and 88. So I just didn't feel like working for anybody else. I had worked for Jourdan, Chanel, Maud Frison, uh, Lario, some Armani things in Italy, etc. A lot of people, Sidonie Larizzi, but I just didn't feel like working for anybody else. So I stopped and, uh, and started to do landscape architecture. Uh, I wanted to create gardens and parks, etc. And, uh, but I was still missing, so that was 88 to 91. But I was still missing the shoes because, you know, I was early 20. So, I mean, in my 20s, and you're not that patient when you're in your 20s. Mm -mm. So the idea is that, you know, this little, this little plant is going to become a huge oak tree in 15 years. I just couldn't wait for that, that time. So I was missing my designs. I was missing my shoes. And in 91... I was saying that to a person, I was trying to buy a lamp in a gallery in Paris, Galerie Eric Philippe. I was trying to buy his lamp and we started to talk and he says, what about your shoes? I said, well, I miss it. I'm missing it. He said, why don't you open there, here? At the end, there is a photo gallery. You should just take it. I said, well, I had never thought of that, actually. And I said, well, well, I mean, that's an idea, but I never thought about it. Then started to speak uh, two or three days after I had dinner with my two best friends. And I just spoke about that anecdote and said, well, you know, Eric said ta ta ta. And, uh, and they say, yeah, he's right. Especially Bruno, who still is my partner. Say, he's right. You have thousands of drawings. You draw all day. So let's just do a shop. So I started by a shop. I could not have started with, I have to say, like, having a small collection, going to buyers, etc. And I love shoes, but also I love jewelry. And there is this moment in jewelry when you open the box, which is an important factor for me. So in a way, also I love objects. In a way, I could not have started in another way. 
in the sense of I needed to have the box and the shoe inside, you know, but a shop is actually showing an environment. So you understand design, smaller design, by the environment of that design mm -hmm. too. So having a shop for me was having the box of the jewelry. So we started by one shop in uh, 91, yeah, at the end of 91. Mm -hmm. The other thing a shop gives you is a direct relationship with the customer. Exactly. And you get feedback, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you go through wholesale partners or you sell through other retailers, mm -hmm. You don't get to meet your customers. Exactly. What mm -hmm. would, you know, how, how important was that in the early days? It has been very important because I remember that people were coming and nobody knew that I was a designer. And so I was selling. So um, the first two years, I was half-time salesman and half-time designer in the factory in Italy. But when I was not in Italy, I was in the shop. I didn't have any office. I was really in the shop. And... Uh, it's very, very important to be straight with the customer because you do see the attitude of the customer, what they like, what they are driven to immediately, what, how they try. For instance, it's, it's always been very interesting uh, for, uh, to me to see that a client, a woman, when she tries on a pair of shoes, she puts it on, she goes straight in front of, in front of a mirror and she looks at herself. She does not look at the shoe. She looks at herself, she turns, she looks at her back, her, you know, she looks at her silhouette, her back, the ass, the legs, and if she pleases her, then she considers the shoes. Right. But it's the shoe is the last thing that she's going to look. She's looking at herself. And, and so all these things I've been seeing all the time because I work with the customers. But also I remember doing a, a slide, a mule with a lot of small braids. And I remember a few customers putting it on, and in, uh, some of these customers remove some braids in order to have a longer leg. And I thought, yeah, it's true, it's a nice design, but it cuts your leg. So if you don't have really incredibly elongated leg, you're not going to go through that design. So you do also understand the importance of, of um, proportion, basically, and how much women know their own proportion and how much they're going to turn around. and. Um, so all of this, you can only have that if, if you're actually selling yourself, looking at yourself. And, um, but also it was interesting that I was seeing so many women, and again, they didn't know that I was a designer, asking me for advice like, this shoe, what should I wear it with? And, uh, and to me, it's always been important because I only do shoes that people appropriate themselves to shoes and do whatever they want with it. So I was surprised that people wanted to that should make part of a uniform or of a type of look. And I could understand, but as I never wanted to design anything else than, you know, leather goods, basically, definitely not clothes. I always had a sort of hard time to say, you should definitely wear it with like a pencil skirt or you should wear it with pants or whatever. I was like, it's up to you, you know. But the direct uh, relationship with customers is definitely the best thing that you can have. The feedback is immediate and it's not, um, and it's also based on instinct. Mm -hmm. Just looking at people, the way they're going to approach a shoe, etc. And also it made me realize that a shoe is often an element of communication. So it's also for people, you know, you have some, some men coming and uh, asking uh, you know, a specific pair of shoes to, uh, to do a gift. 
and it's a very intimistic gift because there is a sizing thing, etc. And just knowing the size of a person, it means that you have a form of intimacy. And some, sometimes I remember men coming and asking the size of a person who was a customer because they wanted to do a gift, and but they didn't want to ask the person. I mean, it's, it's, there is a lot of stories behind mm -hmm. shoes, basically. You had one very famous customer who you started um, were, were coming to you very, very early on, which was Princess Caroline of Monaco. Yes. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, did you know her? I did not know her. Yeah. No, no, I, I sort of call her my second fairy. The first one was Hélène de Mortemar, the director of Dior. And, uh, and the second one was Caroline de Monaco. Uh, Princess Caroline came uh, the first time in November 91. I opened in October 91. And her car stopped and as the shop, she was going in the gallery. So my shop is on the corner of a gallery. So it's a um, gallery, you know, mm -hmm. we say. So you, you cannot enter with a car. So her car dropped her at the beginning of the gallery. And before going inside the gallery where she was going to a, a gallery, uh, she looked at the windows and liked what she saw and then went in. And then just spontaneously things, walked in. Spontaneously walked in, looked at the window, and then came in. And then she came back like two or three weeks after, and she came back with a friend of her, and she already had bought shoes. So she was playing the salesman. And she was saying, This one is great because you mean, yeah, you can dance the tango with this one. And, you know, I remember because there was uh, the person who was selling has been, of course, repeating everything. And I was like super avid of knowing what she had said. <laughs> And at the same time that uh, Princess Caroline came, there was a journalist who was doing um, a paper on new shops in Paris. So not about me necessarily, but about new shops in Paris. And so as she saw, as she saw this high profile character, but also very uh, a beautiful woman, elegant and a high profile a person, she wrote a paper about this new shop where you would see Princess Caroline, etc., and then which brought me all the American buyers for the first season. But I was not ready because they came in 92, March 92, asking for the collection, and I had no collection. Because you weren't doing a wholesale collection. I was you were not selling doing directly wholesale. to I the did not customer. even know that it was existing. Right. To be perfectly honest, yeah. I had never thought about it. Right. Okay, so then, then what happens? Then what happened, I remember exactly what happened is that I say, but, you know, I have no collection. They say, but what about this? I say, but in one year, it's going to be old. And uh, it was the Barney's people who came, the first one. And, um, and they say, but it's not going to be old because it's new for everybody apart from you. And nobody knows you. So I was a bit shocked about, uh, but, so my reaction was like, it still is going to be old in a year. They say, no, it's new for the rest of the world. You're the only one to know that it's one year old. So I ended up selling my first collection uh, from 91 as a first collection for the rest of the world, for the buyers, basically, in 93. Okay. So, which was a, a good luck, actually, a good fortune, because I, really just, I wouldn't have the time to, uh, to have any type of reaction and start really... A different way. Yeah, in a way that collection you were selling, you'd already validated it because you'd worked exactly. on it with your customer. 
everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, soldejanero.com, and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Exactly. So the other thing you're super famous for is this red sole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of red sole has been kind of embedded in pop culture in a way. Everyone mm-hmm. knows the red sole. I've heard a few different stories about 
how you it's, actually came up with it. Mm -hmm. Was it an intentional thing? Like, what, or, you know, was it an no. accident? Like, what happened? It was a type of happy accident. What happened exactly is that um, I was in the factory in Italy. And, uh, and so everything starts by drawing with me. So when I'm in Italy, I have my, my drawings and I look at the new prototypes. So uh, there was a set of drawings which were full of bright color because they were sort of inspired by pop art, 1960s pop arts, hysterography, the Andy Warhol, that type of thing. So I had designed things and all the shoes that I had designed were with bright colors, or outline of different colors, everything was really colorful. So one of the prototype was a Mary Jane pointy last, pointy heel, and a big Mary Jane with a big flower as a button, three petals outlined in a different color and a big heart in a different color. So when it arrived, I looked at my drawing. I always keep the drawing. I looked at the shoe. We tried it on. It was fitting. But I looked and something was better in the drawing. And I could not really explain me what. But there was more vitality in the drawing. So I took the shoe. Profile seemed okay, good. Front, okay. But then when I looked at it from the back, so I had the heel and I had the sole. The sole was black, so there was a big, big part of the design which became black. And there was no black in my drawings. So I thought, I have to remove that black in order to see if something happens. So the girl who had tried the shoes on, so it was the end of the day, she was finished. So she, she had started to um, polish her nails. And so I asked her to get her nail polished because I wanted to erase the black. I didn't want to add a color necessarily. I wanted to erase the black. So by erasing the black, I added the red. And then when I looked, I thought it pops up exactly like my drawing. So I decided to keep a color. At the beginning, as it was going to be a winter collection, I thought it should be green, which is a bit stupid, but green Christmas, I guess. Hmm. And I put green for the winter and then maybe red or another color for the next season. And then I realized, because again, I was often in my shop in Paris, I had realized that most women were only wearing black early 90s. And I remember being in the store and saying to a woman, because I had this color in mind, and she was saying, you know, she was looking at the black shoe because she said, I only wear black. And I said, why do you only wear black? And she says, I don't like colors. I say, you say you don't like color, but you have color. She says, no, I don't have color. I say, yes, look at your nails, look at your lips. And she's, ah, but it's red, it's different. So suddenly I thought, red is different, and it's true. If you don't like color, you don't like green. If you don't like color, you don't like yellow, you don't like orange, you don't like purple. It's really, but you may like red, yeah. you know, red, le rouge et le noir, standard. I mean, there is something, even it works with black and it's pretty obvious. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do a green sole. It should be probably red. And then it became immediately a sign of recognition before becoming a and trademark. And you had no idea that was going to happen. No, and I was not looking for a trademark. I mean, it's, you know, it's a thing, it happens or it just doesn't happen. Right. But I was not, you know, one must not forget that I started by my, my company with my two best friends and still is the same way now, minus one person. But, you know, uh, there is no marketing, you know, when some people 
would call me and saying I would like to make part of the marketing team. I said, there is no marketing, you know, but uh, so, you know, again, that idea has been, which I understand, taken as a big marketing thing, but it was not meant to be that way. But it, it is now, right? So it's like an instant. Yeah, it's a sign it, of recognition. It's an instant, mm -hmm. you know, without having a logo, it's mm -hmm. a logo, everyone mm -hmm. knows, but it's also something that can, people can easily copy. So mm -hmm. you've now had to spend a lot of time and energy and money mm -hmm. to protect that trademark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For at least now, um, I would say more than 10 years, yeah, protecting it. Well, that, you know, it's very important to protect your trademark. Yeah. So, you know, if we fast forward a bit, because mm -hmm. there's, there's so much to tell in your story, like now, Christian Louboutin is like a huge international brand, you know, with, you know, retailers all around the world. I think you make over a million pairs of shoes a yeah. year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what's been the most challenging thing along the way as you've been building this business? You know, uh, the most challenging thing is to, to really keep the space that I really need, uh, my freedom and the space for designing. When I'm drawing, I isolate myself. I can draw in Paris because I'm always busy, there is always people, etc. And the moment for me of drawing is really the most important moment and I need that moment. I cannot, you know, compress that moment and become smaller and smaller. So when you grow, when a company grows, you end up having a lot of things uh, to do, but designing and, uh, but my entire, my entire uh, enthusiasm is coming from me designing, you know, everything keeps on starting for, by a drawing. So that's been the most challenging is to really keep this really important way to keep it and to, 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 you know, to not to be tempted like, okay, you know, I removed two days because I need to go there and I need to do that and we have an opening there, etc. to really keep that, to keep that moment. And uh, so delegating and, um, but that's what you have to do if you want to remain free and, uh, which is my case, you have to have your freedom and the freedom is something that, which passes into your designs. Mm. So to remain free, has been the biggest challenge, but it's definitely worth it. You know, clearly it's now, you know, in the past, you know, 10, 20 years, like shoes have become this big industry. You know, there's a whole market around shoes. Um, one, one way to have kind of found your freedom, you know, many people would have just sold their business and said, I don't want to manage the business. Mm -hmm. I, I will focus on design. I'll find someone else to manage the business. But you've kept your business independent. I kept Why? my. I have kept my business independent because my independent. It's 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 uh, is actually is really acting on my mood, and so to remain independent is giving you the possibility to do it to do things at your pace, at your rhythm, and if I don't do it that way, uh, I wouldn't succeed. You know, if something is not finished, if I'm starting a project which should be should take a year, if it's not finished in a year and it's going to take one more year, it doesn't matter. I accept it and and I know that I have to accept it. If you are driven by a bunch of people, you know, and I have nothing against men in suits or whatever, but if you are driven by the business, then suddenly the business takes over and says, okay, you know, this is this should be done in a year. That's depending on this and that, ta, 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 ta. and so 
when the, the business aspect is becoming more important, you are you're no longer the master of what you do. So your work um, gets damaged by that. Mm -hmm. And so I put my work at first, my energy at first, my desire at first, and then the rest turns around. Mm -hmm. So that's why I needed to be, I need to remain free. Let's say an exhibition like the one we saw together um, took me two years. And probably if I had a company, the company which were driving, they would have said, okay, in one year that needs to be set up because yeah, that, it's that, that, taking that, too much voila. time and you need to do other exactly. things. And, and so I need to be, uh, you know, it's the importance of, of the creativity, my, the importance of that is really it comes out first. You know, for instance, I'm a bad technician. I know it. So I'm using good technicians. But when you have an energy, when you have a creative energy, to me it's like, let's say, a bowl. You know, you have a bowl of, let's say, 10 liters of energy. If you spend half of this energy into technique, you just have half of your energy for the creative part. Uh, some technicians are great and great creative technicians are great. They spend all the energy. Me, I'd rather spend most of my energy into designing. Mm -hmm. So in, in order to do that properly, I need to be really happy in my life. And I think that being happy in my life is being able to, to wake up and know that I want to do my job with still with my total passion and not to have to refer to too many people who just don't have the same, don't necessarily have the same vision that you have for right. them. What I found absolutely inspiring and incredible as we walk through the exhibition right now was just, I think you told me you've done 40,000 yeah. designs, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. different styles. Different styles. And as I, as I kind of considered the volume of things that you've done, there's also a huge amount of variety in what you've created. And your inspiration has come from all sorts of different places, mm -hmm. literally different places, yeah. you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm, Bhutan mm -hmm. and India and uh, Colombia mm -hmm. and, you know, Egypt. Why is travel such a big part of your design language? I think that as a, from a very early age, I wanted to travel. I was living in that neighborhood and um, there was one cinema and this cinema was playing Egyptian movies and Indian movies. And so I'm born in Paris from a French family and we are from Brittany. So we would do Paris, Brittany, Brittany, Paris for the holidays. Hallelujah, we had, a, I had an aunt who was having a house in Perigord. So when we were not doing Paris, Brittany, Brittany, Paris. We were doing Paris, Perigord, Perigord, Paris. So everything which was Frenchy French was okay. I had a very nice childhood, but I was sort of dreaming. Um, my favorite books were Tintin, and Tintin is a reporter, and Tintin traveled all around the world. So I wanted to have the adventures that Tintin was having. You know, he goes to, and you never had Tintin at the beach. You know, Tintin goes to cities, Tintin meets people, Tintin goes to really mysterious places, Tintin goes to Peru and he sees those temples. You know, that, that was my drive. I, I wanted to be a, a, a bit like a Tintin character. And um, so from an early age, I wanted to travel. And when I went to that museum, this museum was containing a lot of objects from different countries. So I've always been from a very early age driven by 
different cultures, different communities, different way, which means different way of thinking, different, different way of being, of existing, different way of eating, etc. So I wanted to meet all those civilizations that I heard of between Tintin and between school. I wanted to explore the world. That's why, for instance, I'm, I'm shocked when people are saying that, you know, people should stay in their community and all this cultural appropriation thing. I think that it's important to be really uh, interested by other culture. It's, it's important to share your culture the same way it's important to receive things from culture. If you think otherwise, it's my way or no way. Yeah. And I think it's the worst way to be. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because as we were going through the exhibition, I thought that maybe some of the designs that you've done over the past 20, 30 years, if they were presented today, mm -hmm. they might be controversial in today's culture where this idea of cultural appropriation has really become you know, a very hot button issue for people. I mm -hmm. mean, how do, you, how do you think we should be navigating those things? For someone who's taken so much pride and pleasure in immersing yourself in other cultures and then finding a way of integrating those cultures into your work. You know, what do you think is the difference between, say, appreciation mm -hmm. and appropriation? Well, it's, it's very different. You see, for instance, I was telling you, I never work with documents. When even the Andy Warhol painting, which gave that flowers, when I looked at the real paintings, it had nothing. It was a, a my shoe has three petals, the Andy Warhol paintings has five petals, there is no outline, there is no hurt in the middle of the flower. So, but it's still the influence, I fully recognize it, is this painting of Andy Warhol. But so when you, when you look at things, the fact to reinterpret is not a copy. If you keep the thing and you just print it, it, it can be considered as a copy. That's why, for instance, naturally, I never work with documents because I think that every, every influence you have, once you are going to transcribe it into your designs, it needs to go to the filter of your memory. And that memory is going to take the essence of what you like of something you've been seeing. You have ingested it, digested it, and then it becomes your design. So there is no copy, there's just influence. And I feel uh, very strong about um, that it's important to accept the influence. And I will always, I mean, I, I will always uh, say that I'm, inf I'm influenced by a lot of different cultures. But it's very, very normal and it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if cultural appropriation is a little bit of an, an aberration for me, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, what about should the Greek from Greece, go to America and say, listen, the White House is Greek. Remove those columns. Mm -hmm. Those columns from the White House are definitely from the Greek culture. Everyone has been taken from different cultures. This is called civilization, mix of civilization. You know, the trading, what is trading? People were arriving from Asia and bringing different things, you know, essence, perfumes, etc., to countries where, like Europe, where we didn't have that. Well, you know, the trading has brought a lot of things to different civilization. It has brought wealth to Asia, for instance. It has brought wealth to the, the, the caravans who are carrying things and bringing them to. It has brought communication. 
people understanding other people. It has both imagination. All of this is important to keep. You know, I, I really, I like, um, what's that? Artisanship. And I fight to keep artisanship alive as much as I can. And the same thing, you know, communication between countries, between cultures is important. Otherwise, mixed blood would not even exist anyway. Yeah, and you're mixed blood. I am mixed blood. Yeah. I'm very proud to be mixed blood. Yeah. I think the other thing that I noticed through the exhibition is that you, you provide credit. You know, you're not... Mm -hmm. you know, and you have real relationships with some of these people and cultures mm -hmm. that you've yeah. taken inspiration from, mm -hmm. which is another important part, which is it's one thing to kind of you know, blatantly copy, but it's another thing to have a deep relationship with the culture and to, to acknowledge that culture in, in the way you, yeah. you present your designs. Of course. No, no. I think it's very important. I mean, that's why, uh, that's why when you're influenced you should not be ashamed, but you should show it and you should embrace it. That's very important. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And when you, even when I work with artisans, for instance, you know, sometimes I have people telling me, well, if it's done this way, we can only do 200 pairs, but we could go to another country and to do multiple. And I always say, no, when you work with the artisanship of a community, for instance, the way to keep that community alive when, they, uh, when their work is their artisanship is not to steal it, it's to get it, to buy it, to work with the people, to keep it alive, and then other generation, we can keep on. If you take the essence of artisans, you transport it into another country to do it in multiple variations because it's cheaper, you end up killing this artisanship. Mm -hmm. So that's a thing, again, I would never do that because I have the deepest respect for artisanship. My father was a carpenter, so I know artisanship since my childhood. And I really am I'm trying as much as I can to protect all the forms of artisanship that I've been working with, with artisans that I've been working with. Okay. Well, Christian, congratulations on the exhibition. Thank you. Uh, it runs until the 26th of July here in Paris. It's, it's incredible. I highly recommend anyone who's listening, if you're in Paris before the end of July, have a look. It will take you into an immersive experience of everything you know, need to know about Christian Louboutin. Thank you, Monsieur Louboutin, you, for spending time with me this morning. This is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. I bid you farewell from a rainy day in Paris. We're in the 12th arrondissement, but it's well worth a visit. And um, yes, we'll see you next week on the BOF podcast. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. Hey, 
everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O, soldejanero.com, and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.